maybe you might notice right off the bat that in uh, Buddhist practice we tend to set our motivation frequently. Um, to have to direct the mind and then the actions. So um, this morning, um, by way of motivation, um, I'd like to think about um, this as being a time where we'll share and learn together this day. There'll probably be a little more sharing in the afternoon, but um, still something that we're doing together and really trying to see what is realistic and beneficial in our lives and try to cultivate that. And what is not realistic and not beneficial and try to uh, learn to abandon those kind of thoughts and speech and actions. And then as we go about this, it's really helpful to broaden our perspective and get outside of just ourselves and think about um, all the people that we touch. And if you really think about that deeply, we're all quite interconnected. Uh, we have a quite impact on each other, some more distant and some less. But hmm, it's hard to say one person would be more important when you look at it from the standpoint of that every one of us, every creature wants to be happy and none, none of them want to suffer. There's no one who wants to suffer. So in that regard, we're all the same. And we're not more important than anyone. So it's kind of the leveling ground. And um, so with that as a motivation, let's think about you know, cultivating these purposes that we heard about this morning um, for our immediate and long-term happiness and benefit for ourselves and all beings. So this uh, book that we're starting with today, the first chapter, has brief introductions to a number of um, common teachings in the Buddhist tradition. And that included things like the Four Noble Truths. Some, maybe you've heard of some of these things, maybe you haven't. We're going to talk about a few of these today, but it goes over the Four Noble Truths, the Three Higher Trainings, the Three Principal Aspects of the Path, the goal of Buddhist practice, the three jewels, and refuge. And that would be a bit too much to do in one line. <laughs> so I picked, uh, I went a little bit by the title of the chapter, which was the essence of the Dharma. And, and as the first paragraph so eloquently says, and you know, I thought about it first for myself, but luckily I had the same conclusion, um, really, well, actually, I'd like to explain this this way. My brother has a very short attention span, and one time he asked me, what is Buddhism about? And I knew I had like 20 words or less. <laughs> so it really came down to this. It's about not harming and trying to be of benefit to others. And then we sometimes expand that to uh, becoming fully awakened to really, this really falls into the both the first and the second, where we develop our qualities when you think of a full awakening, we've developed our good qualities to their 
fullest ability and we've abandoned all of our things that cause harm. So it really falls to the first two, non-harm, not harming, and being of benefit. And so then, now what to speak of, of all those topics? <laughs> um, so here's how I went about it. Um, first I'll read this quote, which for me is, uh, it, 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 it uh, exemplifies this, and there's different translations of it, but it's one thing that I actually, was my main motivation when I um, took full ordination, this was what I had in my mind. And it's this quote from the Buddha, um, abandon negative action, create perfect virtue, subdue your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And so every morning when we wake up, we are uh, instructed and encouraged to set three motivations when we wake up, and they're exactly these three, to not harm, to be a benefit, and then to really set the motivation to develop our capacity to the fullest, to become fully awakened. And it's a really beautiful practice to do. It starts your day off in a really um, wholesome way, and then when you can, you know, they're easy to remember, and then you try to tap into that during the day. And so I chose to speak about the Noble Eightfold Path of this list of things. And the reason was because I, uh, I read this quote by a monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he um, is uh, alive now. He's getting older. He's very, very learned. He's translated much of the texts of the uh, Pali tradition into English. So you'll see his name on, on textbooks in our house. He's very wise and learned. And what he said this, he said, uh, dukkha, which is, we translate a lot of times as suffering, which is the first noble truth, that there is this dissatisfactory experience in our lives. And the origin of that, the cessation of that, and the way to its cessation, these are the four noble truths. So that's the first thing that the Buddha taught, these four noble truths. And they're like the elephant's footprint that contain within itself all the essential teachings of the Buddha. And so he's explained this before, where the Four Noble Truth, this thing, this understanding of what is not satisfactory in our lives, and that there's a cause of it, the origin of it, and that there's a way to, that it can be ceased, and that there's a path to cease it. Those Four Noble Truths. He says, it might be risky to say that any one truth is more important than the others, since they all hang together in a very close, integral unit. But if we were to single out one truth as the key to the whole Dharma, or the teachings of the Buddha, it would be the fourth noble truth, the truth of the way or the path, the way to end dukkha, which is the word that we sometimes translate as suffering, but that's a little problematic. So what he's saying is, so that fourth noble truth is the eightfold noble path. It's kind of like the road map. <laughs> How are you going to... How are you going to um, alleviate suffering and the causes of suffering? Get to a place where it's ceased. So um, when the Buddha talked about the Eightfold Noble Path, he described these eight factors. And I'll just list them first. They are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right meditation, or excuse me, right mindfulness and right concentration. So the first two are related to wisdom, primarily, and the second three, this uh, speech, 
action and livelihood. Those relate to our ethical conduct. And then the last uh, three, effort, right, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, those are oftentimes related to meditative stabilization or developing the ability to both stabilize the mind and then use that mental uh, ability to then penetrate the nature of reality. So we oftentimes in our, we're in the Tibetan tradition, we oftentimes talk about the, the three higher trainings. And that's basically the same thing as the Eightfold Noble Path. We just can't remember eight, so we put it into three. <laughs> well, maybe that's not why, but it works for me. <laughs> and then, um, so in the different traditions in Buddhism, everyone has these teachings. And in, in the broad classifications, we're in the Mahayana tradition. Uh, and oftentimes in that tradition, they talk about practicing these things, these these eight or three things, when you get to the point where you're way far along the path. You've already developed um, this mind that wants to become enlightened in order to benefit everyone. We call that bodhicitta, that aspiration. And you've already got that as a spontaneous thing in your mind. But in the Pali tradition, which is the, the original, earliest teachings that we have of the Buddha, they actually practice these eight right from the beginning, right? As ordinary beings like us. <laughs> and they use them then to guide their lives so that they can get to the point where they have these kind of um, realizations in the mind and abilities to uh, penetrate these things in a deeper way. So we're going to talk about them more in the way for us, <laughs> where we are. And so the first two, the right view and the right intention, they are cultivated right at the beginning of the path. You start with, you, you, you do these all simultaneously, but when you first learn about it, you kind of start with the first one, right view, and then you go into right attention. And we start with those at the beginning, but then we cultivate them and we revisit them as our, um, as our practice deepens. And why is right view so important? Well, it's kind of like the framework I would say, or what we oftentimes hear called the Buddhist worldview. It's like a, a worldview that where you're kind of giving you yourself like a roadmap. Um, we need to understand um, many things about Buddhism or the teachings of the Buddha or how things work to understand both the path and the result that we want to uh, get to. And so then once you have some sense of that, then you need to have a good intention because you could understand all of these you know, various teachings of the Buddha, but if you don't have a really good intention and, and work on your motivation for doing things, it could easily become kind of mm, polluted, I guess you might say, by um, states of mind like pride or self-centeredness or things like that. So as we start off, most of our practices setting our motivation, we try to cultivate these things that are going to lead uh, us in a, in a good direction. And so the Buddha said, and what monastics is right view? Knowledge of suffering, knowledge of the origin of suffering, knowledge of the cessation of suffering, knowledge of the way leading to the cessation of suffering, and what uh, monastics is right intention? Intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness or non-harm. So in here we can see kind of what we just said, that this, this right um, 
view relates to these four noble truths that we just talked about, understanding kind of our predicament and what its origin or cause is and all that. So this view is like the eye. You know, you have to have eyes to see a path or how are you going to get any place. And so this is like the eyes of understanding. You know, you have to have a certain level of understanding um, in order to see your way. And then the, the next one and all the other ones of the eight, they're more like, then what do you do? You know, the intention kind of steers your mind and the other practices kind of help you to know how to get to the goal. But the first one, the, the right view is kind of like what lays out what the path is and where you're going, what your direction is. And so we oftentimes hear call that the Buddhist world view. And so that's why they put it at the start, because unless we have some understanding and then some actually internal guidance from our understandings, then it's kind of difficult to know where to go. <laughs> we could toboggan down that hill and close <laughs> you know, just go where you know, water flows down and go just down, <laughs> but it won't get you necessarily to where you want to go. But you have to have some kind of idea there. And so this view then relates to these Four Noble Truths, right? And then that, I'm just going to talk about that really briefly because you have to have a certain kind of perspective to, for the path actually to make much sense. And this is what I uh, would call like a perspective on the human condition, you know, our situation. And you have to be able to look directly at dukkha, the, the unsatisfactory nature of our lives, that, that things in our life are not permanent and, they, and there is, a, you know, as much as you don't want to have suffering, it just kind of tends to show up. <laughs> you know? and, and there are different types of suffering. There's a lot, a lot, a lot that can be said about that. And so don't think of it just as like mental unhappiness or even physical unhappiness. But there's other things like, you know, like, many of the good things that we enjoy in our life, they don't last. They're transitory. They end, including our body. <laughs> you, know, you know, our health <laughs> changes, our age. I mean, there's just so many things. So you have to have that kind of perspective. And that's basically what the Buddha's career was about, you know, was helping people to be free of suffering. And so it's not good enough just to have that understanding of suffering, but you have to have... Also, the, as you develop right uh, view, this notion that you can do something about it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that you can penetrate with knowledge because these, uh, you know, that this, there's a way to change things. If that wasn't the case, then the solution might be pain relievers, distraction, go to the beach, you know, just distract yourself your whole life or forget about everything, you know. If there wasn't a solution that would probably end suffering, then that might be the better option. (laughs) But that's not what the Buddha said. So then um, one of the basic core beliefs about that is, you know, it's nice to understand that everything's impermanent like this clock, but what's more important to understand is probably that our body and our mind and everything related to that are also impermanent, constantly changing. And there's no security in that. There's no security in that. You can't count on things that are changing all the time. Um, And especially in terms of being happy. (laughs) 
you know, things change, and you can't maintain that state of mind all the time as much as you might wish to. So this was what the Buddha was pointing to in the Four Noble Truths. And then that, the origin of that we have to see is within our own mind. If it's caused by something outside of our own mind, then we don't have a lot of wherewithal to make a lot of changes there. But as we follow, uh, understand the, um, the teachings in this view, we can see that nobody imposes our mind on us. We carry it with us. We can't put the blame outside of ourselves, in a sense. And we, the origin that the Buddha pointed to was actually an ignorance that leads us to cling and crave and be averse to things. You know, we, we just kind of want the things that make us happy and we kind of push away the things that don't make us happy. And that's based on a kind of ignorance. So then, when we, as we develop the understanding of this, then we start to also penetrate that fourth noble truth, that there's a path. There's an ability to have these things cease, and there's a way to that. And so that, um, you know, that's part of this right view. If we didn't have the, any notion that there was a solution, then that, that wouldn't be considered right view. And why did the Buddha teach these, this right view first, you know, these Four Noble Truths? This is a really important point. Um, he doesn't want his disciples or followers or people interested in his teachings that want to take them on and take them as their main practice. He doesn't want them to do it just out of a kind of um, loyalty or devotion, because he knows that that won't work. You have to develop a kind of understanding and insight into the nature of our situation. And that's what's really he's calling for, and that's what's needed. So we're always encouraged to question, understand things, and work these things out in our own mind with, of course, a lot of help. And as we do that, and we progress through these eight factors, we can then come around to the right view again, and we keep revisiting it and revisiting it as our understanding of the whole path deepens. And then another way to look at this this, this um, right view, besides the Four Noble Truths, is, is just the idea of what causes harm and what, um, yeah, what what, what is harmful and what isn't harmful, or what is virtuous and non-virtuous, or constructive and non-constructive. This is what we oftentimes uh, talk about when we talk about karma. It's the idea that our actions, karma means actions, that our actions that we do have an ethical dimension, and that we will experience a result from them. That's a very central idea about the right view. If you don't think that your actions have any consequences for yourself, then it kind of doesn't matter, or for anyone else, you know, it doesn't matter. So one big important thing in the right view is to have some understanding that our actions are going to influence our future, and that we're also influencing others. And also then to be able to discern, this is the hard part, what things are constructive and what are not constructive. We mix those up a lot. This is a you know something that as we get older we learn through our experience a lot about this, but you know you can just think back to your younger days of many of the things that you might have done that you thought were you know going to lead to happiness and mm-hmm, didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> so 
That was not too hard to <laughs> put into your own experience. Okay, so then moving on from right view, it naturally follows from that right view that you would have right intentions or motivations or set these purposes or aspirations. And, and that's because of the understanding that you have. And so then this, these kind of intentions, um, based on right view, they affect our motivations, our purposes, our, um, our inclinations. And we basically shape our mind by setting our intention and our motivation, by setting it with things that are going to be wholesome and helpful to us and trying to abandon things that are going to lead us to um, pain and suffering. And so then the Buddha explained three kinds of right intention, which is really a lot like that. those three motivations that I was saying that we do in the morning, not to harm, to be a benefit, and to you know, awaken in our spiritual path. So the words they use were more <coughs> like benevolence, which is um, kind of this mm, patience and forgiveness and loving kindness, wanting people to be happy. And then non-harm, which is actually correlated with like compassion. We don't want people to suffer. That's kind of our Buddhist definition of compassion, is to relieve suffering and the causes of suffering. So non-harm. And then renunciation. And then the, the Pali tradition, the older elders tradition in Buddhism, they think of that more as a, a kind of a balanced mind that's not really attached to sensual objects like our lunch, <laughs> gotta go get lunch, <laughs> and, you know, all the things that we can get kind of into it, an addictive mind about. In, in the Mahayana tradition, this tradition that's more, mm, has this view of wanting to become a fully enlightened in order to liberate everyone, not just ourselves, they actually take these three, these same motivations and they, and they just expand them. So this one about benevolence and non-harm, they expand to the level of developing a kind of love and compassion that are so strong that they're encompassing not just ourselves but all sentient beings in every in the whole universe that's how expansive it is so it's quite you know and based on this kind of um, compassion trying to develop this mind of bodhicitta this awakening this wish to become enlightened or to relieve the suffering of all beings so we're pretty similar in those regards in terms of the motivations. We just have kind of taken one and expanded it to this outrageously wonderful <laughs> um, extent. And so when we start to understand suffering, then this is quite helpful in terms of our helping us even with our intentions. So this is how the view kind of informs your motivations. Because we can see for ourselves, when we can really see our own suffering, it's quite, um, it's a lot easier for us to give things up, let's put it that way. You don't have to, when you, when you understand what's causing your suffering, naturally the things that lead to suffering you just kind of let go of. And so a lot of things that we cling after and maybe have, you know, got to have this, and you can see where your mind gets really tight around things and causes you to be quite miserable. When you can un- have a broader understanding of what's, how things are functioning there, you don't have to suppress these things. When your view is strong and you really understand it in your own experience, they, these things just naturally kind of dissipate. Now, it's not easy maybe to get to that place for some things, but there's some things that's quite, you know, 
It's very difficult to give up smoking, but I haven't met many smokers who haven't really wanted to. They maybe couldn't do it, you know, so they're working on this right view. That's a very addictive thing, and it's not any different from many of the things that we really have a lot of clinging about, you know, and everyone just has their own uh, particular items. Okay, so then those first two factors uh, kind of work on a lot of the mental part. And then they lead into these next three, which were right speech, right action, right livelihood. And so these now we're kind of moving from the mental level to the level of action, kind of how we are out there in the world more. And so regarding right speech, the Buddha taught about four types of speech that we should refrain from. And the first one is um, things that are false speech, like lying. And instead we want to try to speak truthfully. And that sounds easy, but actually we it's not unusual to have certain categories of things that you kind of just have little white lies about in your life. If you look at it closely, we've done a lot of discussion groups about this and all learned that, you know, we kind of embellish things sometimes and stuff like that. We, we have a pretty, uh, you know, we try to look at these things and clean up our act. And then the second one is divisive or slanderous speech. And this is speech that's intending to kind of divide people, cause them to have uh, anger for each other. And, and instead, we try to use words that promote friendship and harmony. And then the third one of the speech is harsh speech. And these are th- words that are like angry and bitter. And Bhikkhu Bodhi uses the expression, it cuts into the hearts of others. And I think that... Um, all of us would really much prefer to use words that don't do these things, that are more gentle and affectionate, you know. So we work on that. And then idle chatter and gossip is the fourth one. And this is to be contrasted with speech that has more meaningfulness and purpose to it. I guess I would say purposeful speech. doesn't mean you don't talk about things that maybe... Um, it's the purpose behind your speech. So... You know, like, just a quick example. Here at the Abbey, not too often do we talk about sports. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I came from a sports background, so I used to talk about sports a lot. But now I would probably do it primarily in order to make a connection with another person. I would rather talk about the Dharma or what people, what's going on for people and things like that. I mean, the sports world has a lot of meaning for many people, and I'm quite aware of that. Um, so then when I talk about sports and things like that now, I have a purpose, I try to have a purpose in mind. Sometimes I'm inquisitive, what's happening here and there, but I pretty much not so interested in that so much anymore, but the people in sports I'm quite interested in, because to me I worked with a lot of athletes and so I, I care about people. So, but, you know, having some kind of purpose, you know, you, you can spend many, many hours um, kind of wasting time essentially. Um, and so that, you know, putting right speech in here is really, I think, quite an important recognition to realize just how powerful our speech is. It's a very powerful thing. You know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword. I think they had that expression for a reason. And so uh, we want to be aware of that and, you know, try to work on on that as we're moving in through the world. And then the, sec- the next one is right action. And this, this is more related to bodily actions and has three things that we try to refrain from. So the first one is 
destroying life or killing. And in the Buddhist world, that includes all kinds of living beings. We, we really do our best to avoid killing any kind of um, sentient beings, beings that have the ability to discern pain, I think is one way you could say that. And then the second one is uh, not taking what is freely given or stealing. We try to avoid that. And we, using those words, not taking what is freely offered or freely given, takes kind of sets the bar up a little bit. In my vows in particular, you know, like when I see things out on the ground that I might want to pick up and take home, that's actually against my vows to do that. So I try to like walk down the path 10 feet and go back and put them back down when <laughs> I see something pretty, you know, because I have that habit sometimes. Um, and so, you know, there's different levels of that. I'm not advocating that for you, but, you know, just uh, the idea of... Mm, like taking things from the workplace, sometimes people don't see as stealing. You know, it's kind of just like, I used to rationalize that. It's one of my perks, you know. That's not the case. They weren't offered, <laughs> you know. Then the third one of right action is sexual misconduct. And for, um, for people who are monastics, we observe celibacy. And for other people, it's talking, people who are not monastics, it's more talking about things like adultery, seduction, rape, things like that. So, avoiding a sexual activity that's um, causing harm. So, we can see that both the right speech and the right action are things that are versed, you know, they're written in ways like don't, 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 or avoid, avoid, avoid. But I think the um, one important thing to recognize with that is that we can see for our own minds when we do refrain from doing things it's quite a powerful action it's a very powerful thing to restrain yourself it takes a lot of of uh, it takes a lot to do that uh, many factors one that we're coming up to will be mindfulness you know being able to kind of keep in mind the things that you're trying to cultivate but you know um, it's quite a um, it's quite a powerful thing to do, and it's very positive for us psychologically to do this. And then there is the other side of it. Besides refraining, say, from harsh speech, we, we cultivate within ourselves trying to learn ways to speak that are uh, more beneficial and helpful. So like here at the Abbey, we study the system of communication called nonviolent communication. And it's been very helpful for us you know, to, to learn a system that we all kind of know that we can speak and work through difficulties and you know uh, just the things that come up in day-to-day life. So that's kind of we're refraining from things, but we're also cultivating things that are positive and helpful. And then the next one in this category is right livelihood, and this isn't really so different from the other two, the right speech and right action. But the Buddha set it aside as a, as its own just to kind of highlight how important it is to have a livelihood that is not harming. And so what the Buddha mentioned was he wanted his followers to avoid any kind of occupation or job that causes harm and suffering to other living beings, any kind of work that leads to one's own inner deterioration. And you can see that in some people. Their jobs are like tearing them apart in one way or another. I've met a woman particularly from Singapore who was working for a large company and she 
their practices she didn't feel were ethical. It was so hard for her to work there because their practices weren't ethical, you know. And so that was, you know, she had to change. It was too much of a huge internal conflict. And then, so try to earn your living in ways that are honest, harm, harmless, and peaceful. And so he specifically mentioned things that we should avoid, um, like being a butcher, for example, working with poisons, you know, dealing poisons, weapons, dealing weapons and arms, slave trade and prostitution, and dealing in intoxicants, liquors, and drugs, things like that. And when he also, the Buddha also said, when you're doing your livelihood, you want to avoid being deceitful, hypocritical, doing high-pressure kind of sales kind of thing, any kind of trickier, dishonest way of, of acquiring the means of support. I mean, basically, we need things to live, but we're trying to find ways of moving in the world that are not harmful. For people um, in general, you could say that we sometimes fall to kind of extremes, and this is especially for people who... Uh, Sometimes you notice it more in practitioners. Sometimes they go to the extreme of being a real ascetic. You know, they just kind of take. They think that if they do certain kind of ascetic practices, that that's going to purify their karma. And that's really not what the Buddha taught. And that comes up in the in the history of Buddhism. And so it's usually mentioned. But there's also the extreme of indulging in materialism and thinking that you know, just if I have more and more and more, it's going to make me happy. And you can see from your own experience that. Uh, that doesn't work. As my brother said once, you know, he didn't have much money and then he got into a job where he had more money than he ever thought he would have. And he said, well, I'm still, <laughs> I can't remember how he said it, it was pretty funny. It was like, the misery is just easier to take. <laughs> I'm no happier, but the misery is a little easier to take. <laughs> you know, so, you know, everyone uh, who takes, you know, thinks that material wealth is going to bring them happiness, pretty much finds out it doesn't. So, so, you know, indulging in luxuries, even if it's not wealth, but various kind of luxuries doesn't really work. And what's more important about that is that in the in the Buddhist worldview, we have this notion that the things that we're doing in this, that got us this wealth or these good conditions, we created the causes in the past. And as this one um, very Kadampa Geshe said, having a precious human life is the time to accumulate more merit, not the time to relax in the ripening of merit. And so what he's saying there is that, you know, the reason you have anything that's, you know, going well for you in your life right now is because you created the causes for it. Now it's ripening. You have these great circumstances. So it's actually being exhausted. It's like you have a, a savings account and you have this much money and you're just draining it. You can think of it that way. And you want to keep adding to it. You want the compounded interest type. You, know? you want to keep creating merit, doing things that are virtuous uh, with a really uh, good intentions so that you can kind of keep filling that bank account up and have, uh, you're kind of like creating your future, essentially. And then, um, let's see, the next, then the next one, the next three, so down to the last three, have to do um, with more of the inner life. So the last three had to do with kind of the outer life, and now these next three have to do 
uh, with the inner life, and it starts with right effort. And this is where we start to kind of do what we call mind training or working with the mind. And this one, right effort, was one that the Buddha put a lot of emphasis on. And it's because practicing, cultivating uh, wholesome qualities within ourselves requires a lot of work, a lot of energy, and a lot of exertion. And we're always reminded, uh, especially in the West here, that the Buddha is not like a savior. They don't, they just point the path. There's a uh, tonka even, I think on the back there, where you'll see, it's, it might be covered up at the top, you'll see a picture of the Buddha pointing towards the moon. And that's this idea that the Buddha shows you the path, but you have to travel it yourself. So they always say that this is, you know, the goal, or, you know, the results come to those who have energy, who are energetic in their practice, not for those who are lazy. So it's, we have to make the effort. And then with this effort that we make, um, we have this understanding. And this is, I think, what I would say, one of the things that, you know, in Buddhism we talk about suffering, we talk about death, and people think sometimes that's kind of a bummer. But this is the point here that kind of turns that all around. Buddhism is not a pessimistic religion. It has great optimism. In fact, it has, a, uh, it has the belief that we can actually transform our minds completely into beings who are, uh, have abandoned every negative, every unwholesome aspect of our being and cultivated all of our good qualities to perfection. And this is, you know, we're not like hopeless victims of our conditioning of the past. We're not hopeless victims of our genetic pool, <laughs> you know, or our environment. That's not the Buddhist worldview. It's, it's more one that really shines a light on an incredible potential. And we do that through this mental training. And so it kind of falls into, you know, these, we identify mental states that are wholesome, that lead to happiness, ones that are unwholesome and lead to you know, various kinds of suffering. And then once we identify those, we start to see that they're these states that are unwholesome, they're kind of rooted in what we call a lot of times the three poisons, uh, things like anger and hatred, attachment, clinging, you know, this addictive mind, and the ignorance that underlies those, or delusion. And then in the offshoots of that. And in our wholesome states of mind, those also have a basis. And so we try to cultivate those, and, and we have within us the potential to develop all of the qualities that lead to this full awakening. And so then, as we, in our mind, we start to learn how to discern, like we were saying a few minutes ago, try to discern these mental states that lead to our actions. Um, then there comes the place where, under right effort, we make these four efforts. And the first one is the effort to prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. So what that means is when your mind is calm, you, we, there are tools in Buddhism that help you so that when things kind of spark off and want to set you off, that do things that are really pleasant or unpleasant, there are tools that you can cultivate within your own mind that help you to kind of watch the senses, to watch the mind, and to be able to prevent unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. Does that make sense? We have that capacity, and everyone knows that to some degree. Um, but it takes effort, of course. 
And then we also make the effort to abandon the arisen unwholesome states. So, of course, uh, you know, afflictions or these um, miserable states of mind, they arise, they will arise, they continue to arise, and we just don't let them run our lives. We learn and cultivate tools that will help us to abandon those, and that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight, but there's many, many methods to do that. And then the third one is that we develop we develop undeveloped wholesome states. So this is a recognition of the potential the, uh, qualities that we have that are within our capacity to develop, and we cultivate those. So these are things like our, you know, the ability to have loving kindness and acceptance and compassion and it's a long list. And then the fourth one is we try to strengthen and cultivate the existing wholesome states. So the things that we have cultivated, we can't just... You know, it's like you're taking care of a garden. You have to take care of it every year. It just doesn't isn't ready to plant in the spring. You have to keep cultivating. You have to keep uh, putting in effort to sustain the um, growth that you've uh, achieved over time and the various wholesome states to bring them to completion. And I appreciate what Bhikkhu Bodhi said about this. Um, he said, a further word of caution has to be added about right effort. The mind is a very delicate instrument, and its development requires a precise balancing of the different mental faculties. We need keen mindfulness to recognize what kind of mental state has arisen, and a certain degree of wisdom to keep the mind in balance to prevent it from veering to extremes. I think all of us can recognize that. Effort should be balanced without exhausting the mind on the one hand and without letting it fall into stagnation on the other. The Buddha says in order to get good music from a lute, its strings have to be tuned, not too tight and not too loose. So practicing the path has to be done in the same way, balancing energy and calm. I think most of us can recognize that in our own experience, how, you know, I certainly can relate to that. So I think it's you know it's interesting to think about the mind in different ways. Sometimes I've heard the mind as being like a wound. You know, you have to kind of guard it like you would a wound on your body. You don't let people kind of bash into it. So you kind of protect the mind. And then there's also the aspect of the mind that has this great strength and capacity. And there's also an aspect of the mind that's kind of delicate and you need to kind of you know get the balance right so you don't kind of go careening off like... We do, <laughs> in one ditch or the other, as you always say. Okay, so that's the right uh, effort. And then right mindfulness. This is um, kind of a something that we have to make a lot of resolve about. This doesn't come overnight. We diligently train this, starting with things that are rather simple, really, at the beginning. You know, seem kind of, they seem simple, they sound simple, they might be even simple to explain. And they, but they aren't always so simple to do, and then we gradually progress. Like you could say, pain, you know, putting the attention on the breath. is There's one practice in Buddhism, mindfulness of the breath. And so um, basically what we're trying to do here in, a, in the broad sense is we're trying to turn our mind from the external, which we always do. We have ears that point out and eyes that point out and our mouth shoots out and you know, everything's going out. And we have to try to kind of you know, turn more to the internal and be mindful of the internal. We're very tuned in to the things outside of us. We colors and shapes and sounds and this is too rough and this is too hard and I'm talking too long and <laughs> we're very good with that. 
but we have to turn our attention into the inside. And so one practice that the Buddha taught about this are the four foundations of mindfulness. And some of you may have heard of that. They fall into this category. This is being mindful of the body, being mindful of feelings, of mental states, and of the mental contents. And so um, when we develop these capacity, this capacity for mindfulness, and I think I think every, I, th- I have to say I don't know anyone who's been um, practicing Buddhism for a long period of time who doesn't show some improvement in this. And it is a protection, and you can you can see it as such. You know, you, we're not we're always making mistakes, of course, but there is some. If you look over, maybe especially look over like five years, ten years, sometimes one year. I think it's a little easier to look a little longer. You can see changes, and if you're cultivating these things of how you're moving through the world, you're able to kind of attend to these things, and it, it is a kind of protection. You know kind of more what to do and what not to do, what to say and what not to say, or how to say something and how not to say it, you know, when you're out there functioning in the world. And that comes with whether you learn it in, in through these Buddhist practices or other systems that help people to develop these kind of capacities. Sometimes they're the same. Some of these things are, have some overlap. You can see that kind of um, improvement. And that is a kind of protection. You're protecting yourself and others from harm. And so as we develop this right mindfulness, um, that helps us to, in this uh, aspect of what eventually we want to do is to, is to develop our concentration and our wisdom. So the, the eighth of these, uh, Eightfold Noble Path, eighth, Eightfold Noble Path, Noble Eightfold Path, is right concentration. And so we try to combine this mindfulness with a, a really strong ability to concentrate a single-pointed kind of mind where we can really pay attention to something without it veering off to innumerable <laughs> distractions or where they tend to go. And then we, in our tradition, it's taught in this way of kind of like what we did this morning. We, we use this ability to have a mind that's really single-pointed and that can penetrate the meaning of the teachings and we engage in a kind of analysis of the nature of reality the, and how things exist. And we use our, our kind of a thought and a reasoning for that, but it's not like a discursive thought that's running your mind. At this point, you've got the ability to focus your mind, place it where you want it to be, and you have a lot of a lot of the right view, a lot of that you can combine these things now and use it to uh, to actually free yourself from every level of suffering. So, and. Um, that's not something that comes overnight. I used to always have this idea that kind of enlightenment was kind of like, boom, it happened like that, but that's really way off base. It, it's something that's cultivated, and you have like this, more. it's more like you have a tool, and now you need to use it, and you need to look at all these different aspects of things and just kind of get rid of the, um, the mistaken notions that are pervasive, and you just kind of clean them out and cut what we always say, cutting from the root, the ignorance, this kind of fundamental ignorance that is the basic problem that leads to our suffering. And so you use this mindfulness, this concentration with the right view, you know, and then you put those all together and you just completely cut um, the causes of every kind of suffering. I think that's all I really had to say. I have another part, but it's uh, too long and 
it's mostly for people who have listened to this series that our, our teacher here, she's out of town right now, but we did a series on the four establishments of mindfulness. And it talks about the Four Noble Truths. It talks about these kind of distorted states of mind that we have. Um, and it also um, talks about these four mindfulnesses of the body, the feelings, the mind, and the contents, phenomena. And it puts them all together in a very powerful way, and it's a very common Buddhist practice. And so for those who are not new here and are familiar with these, um, that's one really good way to kind of tie this all together in a very practical sense, and we have those teachings online. Okay, so that was our first chapter. And then the next chapter is... the Buddha. So we'll probably be talking about the life of the Buddha. And we didn't use all the chapters in this book that we picked out for this whole year. It's mostly the first number of them. So so um, what we'll do is um, a little dedication. Once we, we like to kind of do three things in our Buddhist practice. We like to set our motivation. We like to do whatever it is we're going to do. And then we like to dedicate. We like to steer the energy of that activity to something that is uh, beneficial in the, in the long run. So may um, this sharing um, be something that presents just a little taste of uh, one of the major teachings of the Buddha and give you an idea of different, some different components of the path. And may you have the opportunity to pursue the parts that are of interest to you and you think would be beneficial for your lives. And just anything that doesn't work, just set that aside. And may we um, always have the opportunity to keep learning and growing and developing ourselves and doing this for our own happiness and the happiness of everyone that we meet and, and everyone that they meet <laughs> and that they meet. So we encompass all beings, all creatures, and free all beings from suffering. <laughs>